It's Wednesday, August the 30th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, but I'm not the only Hoover Fellow dabbling in podcasting. In the spirit of trust but verify, I recommend you go to the Hoover Institution's website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Then head over to where it says multimedia and up will pop uh, audio podcast, a dozen plus and all. This humble little podcast is at the top of the list, and that's because I endeavor to get the best of the brightest of the Hoover Institution, this podcast being no exception. My guests today are Glenn Tiffert and Admiral James Ellis. Glenn Tiffert is a Hoover Institution Distinguished Research Fellow and a historian of modern China. He co-chairs Hoover's project on China's global sharp power and directs its research portfolio. Admiral James Ellis, United States Navy retired, is the Hoover Institution's Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow. Over the course of his distinguished 39-year Navy career, he served as commander of the United States Strategic Command, was a naval aviator, skippered an aircraft carrier, and in 1996 served as a carrier battle group commander, leading contingency response operations in the Taiwan Straits. Both gentlemen took part in a recent Hoover Institution report on the topic of the U.S., Taiwan, China, and semiconductors. They're here today to talk about that report and other strategic questions regarding Taiwan's future and what role America will play. Glenn and Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bill. Delighted to be here. Likewise, Bill. Thank you. So let's begin actually with a little domestic politics here in the U.S., and that is one Vivek Ramaswamy, who was a Republican presidential candidate. He recently went on Hugh Hewitt's radio talk show, and he said the following with regard to China, and I quote, Do not mess with Taiwan before 2028, before the end of my first term. After 2028, which Mr. Ramaswamy believes is the point at which the United States will have achieved semiconductor independence, he then believes that the U.S., quote, will not take the risk of war that risks American lives for some nationalistic dispute between China and Taiwan. His interim solution, move destroyers and submarines to the Taiwan Strait, form a military alliance with India and, quote, put a gun in every Taiwanese household. Now, I can safely say as somebody who follows American politics, Mr. Ramaswamy will not be our next president, but... I mention this because he is striking a distinctly populist chord here, which is twofold. Number one, we don't want to get involved in foreign entanglements. And secondly, once semiconductors are out of Taiwan, once we have semiconductors in the United States, we don't care about the island. Glenn, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, where to start with that statement? Um, I think it just illustrates how out of touch and disconnected Ramaswamy is with the situation in the Taiwan Strait. Um, let's unpack some of, of the points that he made. You know, the idea of giving Taiwanese a gun, um, that is appealing in its own way. In fact, many people who, who believe that Taiwan needs to do more to prepare for its self-defense would point to Israel, Switzerland, Sweden, Finland as models. Um, the problem with that, though, is that Taiwan has extremely strict gun control laws. So the idea of Taiwanese keeping rifles in their closets as Swiss males do is right now a, a bit far fetched. So we can just tick that one uh, off the box, you know, the box there. Um, the second issue um, with regard to India, it's not clear at all that India has any appetite for a U.S. alliance um, to preserve Taiwan. India has joined the Quad, which is a loose grouping of nations, um, very much oriented towards China, but not explicitly mentioning China, that cooperates across a range of issues. The U.S. sees it as, as uh, in many ways, a strategic security alliance, but India sees it much more broadly than that and is, um, is tempering uh, the extent to which it cooperates on security affairs. So mm -hmm. India is also, I think, out of the equation. 
Uh, but the most serious point here is there are so many more reasons why the U.S. and Taiwan are bound tightly together than just the semiconductors piece. Taiwan, in many ways, is a model case for a nation that was once a one-party authoritarian state making the transition to a pluralistic uh, democracy, a democracy that in many ways is extremely admirable and a leader in the region. Um, that is something that's worth uh, nurturing, cultivating, preserving, and protecting, just for its own, you know, for its own value, and and to preserve the human rights and achievements of 24 million Taiwanese citizens who have been tied to the United States for decades, even generations. And so we, I think, for a lot of reasons, very humane reasons, have very strong interest in preserving Taiwan's autonomy. Um, and and helping them uh, resist China's uh, advances in that part of the world. But over to Jim now. So I was going to say, Jim, back in 1992, Ross Pro used to like to say, it's that simple. <laughs> That's what we have. <laughs> Promise well, Hanley, it's that simple. If only it were that simple. And, and you know, there, in addition to the points Glenn raised, I mean, there's a lot of rather pragmatic pieces. We've been talking for a decade and a half about a pivot to the Pacific. And, and quite frankly, from a practical and military standpoint, it's been spelled with a very small P. And, uh, you know, the, the resources that uh, that he talks about would have to come from somewhere else. Uh, we have, uh, you know, shortfalls in uh, as you know, in, uh, in deployment capabilities and the like. And so we're, we're in the process of addressing those things, but we're not ready yet for uh, for something of, of that stripe. Uh, the, the support that we might expect from allies in the Indo-Pacific, uh, Glenn uh, alluded to the relationship with India, even Japan and, and South Korea and Australia are looking very, very closely about the, at, the, at the situation and not just on uh, at, in their relationship with the United States, but also in the, in the Taiwan domestic political scene. And so they're quite content to talk and, and support us in, in, in preserving the status quo across the Taiwan Straits. What they're not ready to do is to, uh, is to support a dramatic change in either direction, whether Taiwan declares independence, whether we decide we want to sign a treaty with uh, with Taiwan or, or if we uh, if we were to withdraw altogether. And so there's going to be second and third order consequences that I don't think the uh, the presidential candidate has be even begun to uh, to address or as Glenn says, unpack. You know, Bill, there's there's one other point, too, that your listeners may be interested in. The Hoover Institution uh, in July released a major report on semiconductors. Uh, and we that was the product of an 18-month deep dive by a working group of uh, about two dozen people drawn from the tech industry, the national security industry, China Watchers, a very distinguished working group. And Ramaswamy's argument that the United States might in any near term establish self-sufficiency in semiconductors is um, is fanciful. Um, the United States is working very hard to get back into the game, but the global market for semiconductors is simply so large that the there is no hope of the United States being able to go to an autarkic self-sufficiency you know, position or even a dominant position, that it, the, the sort of position it held decades ago. Uh, you just think pretty much any device that runs on electricity has semiconductors in it. What the United States certainly needs to do is re reduce its vulnerabilities, particularly in parts of the market that, that are security sensitive. Uh, but but the solution here is not just taking it uh, all within our borders, but rather working with our allies and partners to ensure that all of us are secure. Yeah, and from a practical standpoint, uh, the supply chains go you know are multi layered in all of this, and we talk about the the semiconductor, the fab capabilities that are resident in Taiwan, and, and all of that. That doesn't even begin to address the component elements, the the rare earths, and the things that are necessary to create this, on which we're still hugely reliant on China. 
The U.S. is up to now 15 to 16 percent of uh, of production capability, but China dominates the market in seven of the nine critical production areas, both with intellectual property and, quite frankly, uh, lacks uh, environmental regulations. And so that's all been been shipped to China as well. And while we're there, too, as Glenn noted, we're trying to to reverse that process. That's going to be a very slow process. And so we're going to be reliant on on China for not just the semiconductor piece that the, that these rare earths contribute to, but the whole energy transition that's underway with magnets and the like that power electric vehicles, make wind turbines work, all of those things. We've got real interlocking relationship with China that even as we if we might wish to, we we just simply cannot uh, sever uh, dramatically or in a, in a draconic fashion. Yeah, I want to dig deeper into the report, which really was a fascinating read, by the way. Well, well done, gentlemen. But first, I'd like to uh, get a couple more thoughts on Taiwanese politics. Uh, most Americans may not be aware, but in addition to the United States having a presidential election in 2024, Taiwan goes to the polls in January, I think, uh, January 13th, I believe, in 2024. Uh, a Washington Post column, August 20th, by Josh Rogan. He's a foreign affairs columnist for the for the Post. The headline, why is China so afraid of Taiwan's vice president? This would be Lei Ching-te. I hope I didn't butcher the name, Glenn. Uh, Lei was in New York and San Francisco this month. Uh, I guess these are called transit stops because you can't actually travel. You have to you know, some come by the United States, a transit stop, they call it. He's running for president. He is a runner in some polls uh, and he was elected one opposition leader says and i quote it opens the doors to hell which sounds to me like just kind of election year rhetoric if you will but clearly the government in beijing does not fancy lay what what is the problem here why why does china not like lay sure let's call him william lie i think that's a little bit easier for all yeah. of us uh, and go by his uh and, and it's lie it's lie not lay lie correct okay. right correct yeah. So he comes from a wing of the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, which is currently the ruling party in Taiwan that is more independence minded historically. Uh, and so over the years, he's made some fairly strong statements in that direction about Taiwan being an autonomous nation and country, exactly the sorts of language that pushes the buttons of the PRC, which, of course, asserts that Taiwan is an integral part of China. Um that does not represent the full spectrum of opinion even within his own political party and the current president who comes from that party has staked out a much more diplomatic and moderate tone on that partly not to inflame tensions with china uh, because the united states also has uh, has a lot of skin in that game uh, during his transit stop to the United States, William Lai was at pains to indicate a more moderate vision that's consistent with the current president's vision. That is, he's not going to rock the boat. Right. Uh, but it is in China's interests, and it's in the interests of, of the candidates from the other political parties in Taiwan to paint Lai as, as sort of a radical, independence-minded politician who is simply going to provoke China to do something rash and destabilize the region. And so it is in part election year politics. Um, Lai hopefully understands the, the importance that the United States attaches to maintaining stability in the region and not he, you know, needlessly provoking China. And so, uh, so we see him moderating and tacking uh, uh, into the winds there. Uh, Jim, the uh, race got a new candidate this week, Terry Gao, who is the founder of uh, Foxconn, which happens to be the world's largest producer of electronics, including iPhones. Uh, he is running against the status quo in the DPP. He is an outsider. He sounds a little Trumpy from, from what I read about him. Um, two questions for you, Jim. I want you to take on number one. 
he's referred to as a populist in stories. He's he's a populist candidate. I know what populist means in American politics. That's Trump. That's Bernie Sanders. I'm curious to what a Taiwanese populist is. And then secondly, if he wants to run against the establishment, what is he trying to tap into? Is there is there a, an audience for this in Taiwan? Well, I, I think, you know, AESC is a populist, and Glenn's former able than I to, to define that in Taiwan. It's much more complex than uh, than perhaps it is here in, in, in many ways. But but I, I, what he's trying to tap into is, you know, in, in, the, in the final analysis, you know, I think everyone would like the issue across the Taiwan Straits to be resolved peacefully, you know. And, um, and so he's trying to take that message back that somehow he has the magic touch because of his abilities, demonstrated abilities to craft massive industrial complexes in China, negotiate deals, have Foxconn manufacturing succeed there, all of those things, that that gives him some magic touch with the uh, People's Republic of China. Unfortunately, I think he's a little late to need. Now, Glenn can can uh, can jump in on this, but I think the, we moved on beyond that point. That that might have worked some uh, a decade or so ago, but, but given where China is now, the statements uh, coming out of the PRC and the and and the like, I just don't think that uh, that, that, that he can't deliver on that, on those promises and those commitments. And so I think that's going to be the challenge for him. And of course, as was all, always the case with uh, with extra candidates that jump in, and, and the, the conventional wisdom, which may be proved to be too conventional and not nearly wise enough, is that this virtually ensures that Lai will become the uh, the president because it uh, it further divides the uh, the opposition parties that. Uh, the KMT and the and the other the other uh, independent parties that are they're competing for the uh, for the presidential slot. So, uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's uh, it's complicating. Uh, I'm not sure that you know there's enough detail there as we often see with Ramaswamy and others in the U.S. political spectrum. How are you going to get this done? And and why do you think that they're going to be attuned to this without some massive concessions on the part of uh, of Taiwan and the people of Taiwan, which I don't think they're they're ready to do. Uh, things have changed dramatically since the uh, uh, the Hong Kong uh, uh, transition that uh, that was forcibly imposed on them by the PRC and the, the old mythology of uh, you know, uh, one China, two systems uh, has kind of come apart in the eyes of the Taiwanese people. The public sentiment has shifted. It hasn't brought uh, to your earlier point necessarily the uh, the, the the rabid uh, uh, nationalism that uh, uh, that it may be evolving, but it has shifted public opinion in in ways that are important in how the Taiwanese see themselves, uh, and they're no longer identifying the, the bulk of them as uh, as Chinese or even Taiwanese Chinese. Uh, uh, they uh, they increasingly see themselves as Taiwanese uh, as a separate entity, and it's that uh, uh, that I think is going to uh, to make his his conversation a bit more difficult. Ultimately, you know, the U.S. policy for decades has been, hey, we want this to be resolved peacefully uh, with the uh, the agreement uh, of the uh, of the Taiwanese people and the consent and that kind of a consensus. And so that's what we're trying to do. He seems to be. Holding out a, you know, I have a secret plan to uh, to end the conflict, kind of thing. We've heard those kinds of things before in our own history, uh, but he's not very clear on the specifics. Glenn, do you have any further details on that? Well, you know, the the presidential election is interesting because with him joining the race now, there are now four major candidates. 
I think Jim's absolutely right. The smart money is on him dividing the vote uh, among the three opposition candidates, and that would work to William Lai and the DPP's advantage. But one of the things about the Taiwanese electorate that makes elections so interesting is that there's a very, a significantly large proportion of the electorate that's kind of a swing vote and, and undecided going into any election. And it is very prone to leaning one way or the other, depending on what the climate on election day is. And so that creates a certain amount of uncertainty in what the outcome actually will be. This played out in the last presidential election very clearly um, when when the president, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, who was running, was relatively weak in the polls. And it looked like, you know, she she was not a shoe in to to be elected. But then events in Hong Kong turned south and the PRC really began to crack down hard. And that played very much to her advantage and gave her a big boost going into the election that put her over the top. And it was a it was a very big win for her. So uh, a lot will depend on where things stand in the days leading up to the election. But I think it's likely that that uh, Terry Goh's entry into the race will work to the advantage of the ruling party. And final political question, Glenn, is there a candidate that Beijing prefers? Uh, anyone but the ruling party. Um, <laughs> the other three candidates are staking out um, different flavors of, of the same position, which is we know how to get along with China. We know right. how to build bridges with China. We know how to lower the temperature and establish a, a, a more cooperative arrangement with China. And in particular, um, you know, there's a business and economic growth um, angle to that as well. Um, the better we get along with China, the more we can sell goods to China the more jobs will be created. Um, all of this antagonism with China is actually hurting the Taiwanese economy. And with, as with most elections, you know, the average voter casting their ballot on election day in Taiwan will, yes, be thinking about the larger geopolitical context, but for them, it's local bread and butter issues. Mm -hmm. It's the economy, it's inequality, it's inflation, it's the, um, the, 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 higher cost of living, the fact that young people are finding it difficult to buy apartments, um, the same sorts of issues we face in California in many ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, in a real sense, though, Bill, you know, it's from my perspective, and I defer to Glenn as the, as the real China hand here, the, they're answering, uh, Gao and, and is answering the wrong question. In other words, he's talking a policy that was a applicable uh, a decade and a half ago when the right. concerns that the PRC had was about to uh, deterring Taiwanese independence. That's not the that's not the issue anymore. We, I think most of us now believe that uh, the PRC has shifted its policy. It's no longer wanting to prevent uh, Taiwan from declaring independence. It wants to compel reunification or reassimilation. That's a completely different issue. And so the what he's it, it's almost as though what he's saying would have been applicable to uh, uh, to a previous scenario when uh, when that was the issue on the minds of the uh, the People's Republic of China and their leadership that how do we keep them from declaring independence? Uh, but now they've made compulsion uh, compulsory uh, reunification or reassimilation or whatever the the appropriate verb is. A, a part of China's inevitable future, and uh, and and so that's a that's that's a different question, and it's not clear that uh, that what uh, Gao and others are proposing is going to address that as effectively as it needs to. Mm -hmm. You know, Jim's right. There's a sense in which the other candidates really want to turn back the clock, uh, and you know, the vast majority of the Taiwanese public uh, feels deep in their hearts that Taiwan is an autonomous, self-ruled nation. Uh, and it really where the division is, is about how hard they want to press that and how vocal they want to be. 
and and the vocabulary that they would use to to describe that. Um, most Taiwanese are very happy to continue the status quo, which allows them to be de facto independent without, right. you know, shouting it from the rooftops that they're de jure independent. Um, but the window is closing on that. The PRC is really tightening the noose around the island. Uh, and there may be a reckoning uh, uh, in, in yeah. years ahead. We'll, we'll just have to see. Let's shift to the semiconductor report. The former title of it is Silicon Triangle, the United States, Taiwan, China, and Global Semiconductor Security. I would note it's a joint report of the Hoover Institution and the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. Uh, Admiral Ellis, um, the point of this, you want to focus on incentives, tax policy, collaboratives. Um, you don't want to get into subsidies here. No, I, you know, ultimately, we've got to deal with the problem. And there's there's a couple of levels in which you do that. And we made some some initial moves, as, as we've discussed in, in, in earlier comments here, Bill, uh, that, hey, we've got a problem. We've got to begin to address it. But over the long term, this has to be sustainable. This has to be uh, has to work economically. It has to work effectively. Glenn's already highlighted some of the challenges we have with with onshoring in terms of labor and, and costs. I mean, TSMC, when we visited them last August, would very candid. It's going to cost you 40% more to manufacture these chips in Arizona than it does in Taiwan. And so how does that play into your uh, your profitability and the like going forward? And so at the end of the day, this has to has to be a business and not in a pejorative sense, but it, it, we have to incentivize the flow of private capital into this. And one of the messages that we tried to convey in the report is we can't uh, subsidize our way out of this. We put you know, 52 billion in the CHIPS Act, the 39 of that, 39 billion of that, I think was in, in the form of subsidies of one form or another. Right. Uh, how long, we, we can't continue that. We've got to, we've got to incentivize a, an economic uh, and a business model that encourages the investment of private capital in terms of research and development, in terms of creating this, and they have a, a right and, a, and it's appropriate to get a return on investment. So we need to think about it in those terms. While we acknowledge the importance of, of a short term, you know, get the thing started, there is a role for, for government in that. Over the long term, we don't see that as the as a, as a successful outcome. This is a as I as I used to say in talking about nuclear technologies. Hey, this ha at the end of the day, this has to be a business, not a religion. And we have to find a way to make this uh, this self self-sustaining. And uh, and that's part of the uh, uh, the conclusions and findings of the report. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree with that. Part of the solution, of course, is working with allies and partners that that have lower costs to ensure that we can spread some of the supply chain and semiconductors to countries that are friendlier to the United States and more reliable partners. And there, there's a convergence of interests. You know, countries like Malaysia, Brazil, Mexico all want to climb the value chain and and do more advanced manufacturing. There's, there's strong obstacles in those countries, you know, rule of law, IP protections, business climate that have prevented them from occupying that position now. And so this is a very long term play that will take sustained support um, and, and working with the United States. But really, the way out of this problem is is to work with those nations. The U.S. needs them. They need the U.S. I think it's critical for us to ensure that we have a reliable supply and maybe some domestic production on those parts of the market that are critical for national security. And there maybe you have guaranteed contracts with DOD. Um, whether that amounts to subsidies or not, you know, we can we can sort of be semantic about it. But there is a risk premium attached to making sure that your planes and tanks and and missiles have the chips that they need. And so we may be willing and it might be smart to pay a slightly higher price to guarantee onshore production of that. But with regard to the larger semiconductor market, there's really no economic case. And getting semiconductors right here 
is critical because in some ways it's a microcosm for uh, or a pilot case for a lot of other technologies of tomorrow uh, uh, with where we face similar problems, whether it's batteries, alternative energy, nuclear. Um, figuring out how do we de-risk from China uh, applies across the board. Right. And this has evolved over years, Bill, as you know. And uh, in 1999, for example, we produced 37 percent of the world's semiconductors in the U.S. domestically. You know, and we're now down to 12 percent. And, and we want to back that off. And as Glenn noted, this is a bigger issue. This is the, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, on you know, I don't care whether you call it uh, deglobalization or a reglobalization without China, but there's a there's a movement afoot here that we have to get right for the long term, and we can't do it alone. You know, Ramaswamy and, and his statements notwithstanding, I mean, hey, we just don't have the labor force, we don't have the uh, the capital to uh, to put towards it, we don't have the, the raw materials, the processing capabilities. All of these supply chains uh, have nodes in uh, in. Uh, allies, potential allies and partners that we need to much more effectively capitalize on than we've been in the past. And so, you know, I, I'm not a, an anti-globalization per person, but I think the, we've learned that there are risks to that. And in, in that context, I do like the term de-risking. We're trying to back our way out of those uh, those risks in an appropriate way. But but the, the, the simple solution that you talked about earlier, the hand wave is that we'll just bring it all to the U.S. and, and do it all here is simply impossible. And so what, is the, what does the construct look like? How do we get into it in a measured fashion? How do we include people and our allies and partners in the, in the organizations that we're assembling to, uh, to address these issues technologically, look at it from a global perspective, address trade policies? I mean, this is a, this is a very complex Gordian knot here that we're trying to untangle. And and it's going to take some time and some patience and some real diplomacy. As as George Schultz would have reminded us years ago, if you want everybody aboard at the landing, you got to have them aboard at the takeoff. And so some kind of a conversation that brings them into the policy shaping is as absolutely essential, as as painful as that may be to some some of a of a certain political strike. Interesting that you mentioned the word globalization, because in reading the report, that word comes up in a quote from Morris Chang, who is the founder and chairman of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Two things he said in this report, gentlemen, caught my uh, attention. Uh, his first quote, he calls the current situation, quote, the end of the beginning. He is paraphrasing, I think, what Churchill said at the end of the uh, the Desert War in, uh, in World War II. But then later he says, and I quote, globalization is almost dead. He emphasizes almost. Globalization is almost dead. Free trade is almost dead. So let's let's unpack those. First of all, what does he mean, Jim, by the end of the beginning? Well, I, I think you've, uh, you've he, he couched it in really appropriate terms, and I don't think that was an accident that he uh, that he went back to to Churchill in the in that context. But I think it's because it's that significant, quite frankly. I mean, you could expand that where he focused on the semiconductor piece, but it's but it's bigger than that. It's our relationship with China and now China and Russia, and and what are we going to be shaping in this uh, in this so called new world order that we've been uh, we've been talking about for for a couple of decades? And so I think it is just. The beginning. We're beginning to see what those uh, those opportunities could look like. Uh, we have to find a way, and I think where the administration is pursuing that to at least have a conversation. I mean, to, to quote Churchill again, he wasn't he that said jaw jaw is better than war war. And so you have to have some kind of a conversation to see what's in the realm of the possible. And hence, Raimundo and others travels to uh, to Beijing uh, 
Uh, but but on the other hand, we have to uh, have the courage to to shape a uh, to begin to shape this in a in a new direction. And and I think what uh, Morris is cautioning us about is that hey, this this is a long road uh, a road to hoe, as my uh, my South Carolina grandfather used to say. And and I think it's the point that that Glenn raised. We're just beginning this process. We're just uh, it's gonna it's gonna be you know this is not a one and done. The Chips Act didn't solve it. Uh, this is a, going to be an iterative process over the long term, with as much an, an economic as, uh, as as national security uh, uh, implications. And so, uh, I think that's what he was uh, he was trying to allude to. And then the second quote: "Globalization is almost dead. Free trade is almost dead." Well, you know, I'm. How do you define globalization? I guess does it have to include everyone? Uh, you could argue that uh, that it never really has, and uh, though we encourage Russia to be a part of it now, I think that's done for uh, for for the foreseeable future. And uh, we talked about the difficulties, the practicalities of of, of decoupling uh, from uh, from China. The fact is that you know we can't effectively do it without some pretty dramatic impacts on the U.S. and indeed the global economy and in ways that, uh, that I'm not sure that everyone is really willing to tolerate. And and also that kind of an approach risks the allies and, and partners that, uh, that you know, so far have managed to be with us on this. We've, uh, we've done some amazing things, to be fair, in terms of the semiconductor uh, manufacturing capabilities, the tools necessary to do this. We brought people on side, the Dutch, for example, from ASML and have aligned with with many of our policies, as have the South Koreans and the Japanese, in terms of provision of the high end capabilities to China. Uh, that's a very sensitive issue for them, and has to be worked very, very gingerly and very, very gradually. So, you know, I, I didn't. I'm not sure I coined it, but I I, I heard the term uh, reglobalization without China some time ago, and it kind of resonates with me. And it doesn't mean completely without China. It means without China having a dominant position, having the ability to shape and influence the uh, the future uh, to our detriment over the long term. And so it doesn't mean that they're out and they're excluded. It means that their role has to be adjusted and, and, and examined very, very carefully as we uh, as we decide how to uh, restructure this uh, this global trade and, uh, and economic environment going forward. Glenn, the report points out something that I was not aware of, that the Chinese government at one point made $180 billion available to PRC companies. And uh, in the report's words, it produced mixed results. Is there is there a teachable moment here out of China? Well, that's right. one specialty. And he can, he can say that there certainly is. Yes. There is. And, you know, I think it, it's a wonderful case for how you, you get um, policy levers wrong. China has spent uh, hundreds of billions of dollars trying to jumpstart a semiconductor industry and onshore as much as possible of, of world production uh, for its ec own economic development uh, uh, imperatives, but also for national security imperatives. And really, the results have been extremely disappointing, even by by um, uh, our standards. You know, China, much has been made of the Made in China Plan 2025, in which China set out targets and priorities for a host of of critical technology, semiconductors being one of them. And just to give you a, a sort of snapshot of how disappointing the results have been, um, their, their target was that they would meet 40% of their needs in semiconductors by 2020 and 70% mm -hmm. by 2025. Right. So how have they done in terms of production by indigenous firms? The best estimates suggest that instead of 40%, they achieved just under 6% uh, by 2020. 
And the projections for 2025 suggest instead of 70%, they will maybe achieve about 75 to 8% in spite of hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies, investment, you know, uh, concessional loans. Why has that happened? Partly because the state-controlled economy is inefficient. Um, it is not exposed to uh, to market pressures. It's not nimble. It's risk averse. And so the firms that dominate that sector are not really innovating to their full potential. There's phenomenal. And it's corrupt. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. There's phenomenal corruption, just eye popping stories that are coming out to the to the tune of tens of billions of dollars being spent with barely a building to show for it. Um, there's a lot of poli political sort of factionalism within China that steers money to one patronage network or another. And then they have tremendous shortfalls in human talent and human capital that they've been trying to plug by paying whatever it takes to lure the best Korean and Taiwanese engineers to China. But Korea, Taiwan, and the United States most recently have adopted policies that make it um, very, very hard, if not illegal, for their home talent to go to China to, to play those roles. And so you've got the corruption, you've got the inefficiency, uh, and you've got the political patronage networks and the kind of top-down management that are all inhibiting progress there. And it's simply a function of the way China works. China does really well at mobilizing capital and people, but right. semiconductors doesn't work that way. Semiconductors needs tremendous innovation, nimbleness. You need you know market signaling uh, and and this is this is an industry that that changes year to year. So you need constant innovation as well. It's not like, say, building steel plants, which China has done at tremendous mm -hmm. capacity. So we are in the middle of an election year here in the United States. The president of the United States is going to go around and tout the Chips and Science Act, which he signed a year ago. Um, as Jim mentioned, $53 billion for the semiconductor manufacturing and R&D, uh, plus, I believe, a 25% tax credit for capital investments in semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, I would wager dollars donuts. He will go to Arizona, which is a critical state where this is happening. Here's a question, though, gentlemen. This is not a partisan question. It's really one of policy advancement and success. Um, I believe that right now uh, we have something like 50 new facility for projects uh, announced here in the U.S. Private companies have pledged more than $210 billion in investments. A simple question to you. Is this getting it done? Well, not at the pace and the effectiveness that was that was originally envisioned. I think it's no secret that the uh, the TSMC effort in in Arizona is is way over budget and uh, and behind schedule uh, they've had to bring in additional uh, labor uh, skill sets from uh, from Taiwan in order to uh, to try and and rectify that they're going to eat a lot of a uh, lot of losses or uh, excess costs and uh, over and above what was projected and and i think it just shows the the degree of difficulty here and in onshoring it to some degree you know there there's labor issues that are that are in play here i don't need to get into the the pros and cons of, of those things that and so now there's you know a, a local labor not confrontation but certainly disagreement with the approach that the Taiwanese are taking and so uh, it just shows the difficulty of uh, of creating these capabilities domestically and so uh, I think there is an advantage the money is flowing there are jobs there there is there are things that the president can legitimately point to I think that are that are success but the other takeaway is degree of difficulty in all of this and uh, it's not magic. It, at some point, you have to have the ability to. Uh, I mean, these are not just uh, you know steel buildings and uh, and concrete pads. They they have to be done to to precise levels. They have to uh, uh, they have a level of sophistication that is beyond the, the normal 
construction. And it's much the same as building a nuclear reactor. It's not the same. And you've got to have the right kind of concrete. It's got to have the right level of stability. And again, I'm not making excuses, but I'm just highlighting the fact that uh, these are skills that, that aren't as readily available or as widely available in the United States as they once were. And so uh, that that becomes uh, the challenge in, in rectifying all of this. So I think there are some legitimate successes. It's going to arrive at some point. Uh, certainly TSMC uh, is committed to uh, to that. And indeed, as you know, they've committed to a second facility with even more advanced capabilities. So so those are all coming, but they're not going to be here on the on the timeline that was originally projected. Glenn, do you have any more uh, current information? No, I think Jim's absolutely right. You know, I, I think we didn't lose our position uh, in semiconductors overnight, and we're not going to restore it overnight either. Um, we, I think the, the lesson here is that we need patience, um, and we also need to have some appetite for failure here. If we're afraid to fail, we'll never make any progress in, in, in any of the industries in which we need to restore or preserve our position. There has to be a certain, and, and these are risky ventures. You know, if if part of the problem here, of course, is that it's been cheaper and safer to do it in East Asia, uh, to bring that capacity back into the United States has required uh, government incentives to to create the conditions at which private capital will take the risk. So let's just let's let's make sure that we don't run away from it at the first sign of failure. Um, I mean, part of that is is the market driven mechanisms that are, are that we hope will be operative and dominant here. Um, the key thing, too, is that we need to maintain or onshore a certain amount of manufacturing capacity to ensure that we're still doing the fundamental research that's necessary um, for our own um, for our own security and for our own economic competitiveness. Um, one of the challenges is that by outsourcing so much of the manufacturing that used to be done in the United States to places like East Asia, we're losing uh, an entire generation of workforce and the understanding of how you take sort of textbook knowledge and turn it into product on an assembly line, which resides in people's heads, you know, and that takes time to develop. We've lost that. Uh, it used to be that America's uh, universities, you know, Taiwan's semiconductor industry was built by graduates of Stanford and Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are other universities, too, that have phenomenal talent in semiconductor fundamental research. But as we've lost manufacturing, that research has, has sort of pivoted away from the applied domain into really theoretical uh, domains, and that's not going to help us either. We need manufacturing to ensure that we're focused on the knowledge that's required to actually build products. Yeah, there's and the, the labor capability, the, the knowledge, you know, wasn't resident in Arizona, you know, behind a sign that said break glass in case of emergency so that when they set up the plant, there was an immediate labor force. I mean, these, to the extent that there are skilled folks, they come from other industries. I mean, you know, we have production lines for uh, for military equipment to missiles and the like in Arizona, and some of these people will draw from that. So to Glenn's point, over the long term, we have to find a way to uh, to build that capacity as well and uh, and not just the the high-end phd type uh, type uh, skill levels but the uh, uh, the skilled craftsmen that uh, that are so essential to uh, to these manufacturing capabilities we don't have a, a surfeit of that capability yet and uh, and that be that begets a conversation that we probably don't have time for certainly in my lifetime uh, which is what do you do about the educational systems the things that foment that the apprenticeships the other the other options that are going to be necessary to uh, to revitalize or or expand at least the uh, the skilled workforce uh, in America to uh, to address these these now uh, extant uh, requirements that uh, that could be filled by by American workers, but right now they're struggling to do so. 
it seems to me that there's a larger story here, and that's one of the United States playing catch-up, catch-up in terms of supply chain resilience, industrial capacity. Glenn, what other strategic industry should we be looking at in terms of the narrative of the United States playing catch-up? Not just semiconductors. What else to what else would you point attention to? Well, at the risk of self-promotion, we're doing a baby version of the report <laughs> um, that we did on semiconductors on battery technology that should be out sometime next year. On okay. um, battery technology in the energy transition, but particularly in the EV space, is one to watch. Uh, you know, it's I, I don't think it's quite captured the consciousness of the American public yet. But over the last two, three years, again, the way China operates through massive subsidization and 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 uh, mobilization of China's domestic production capability, it's built a very, very competitive electric vehicle industry that is making beautiful looking cars decked out with all the latest gadgets and technologies uh, and not bad uh, mileage specs at half the price of the global competition. Right. And they're turning these things out at a volume that will soon hit the shores of the United States and Europe like a tidal wave. And it might be, you know, the, the biggest shock to Detroit since the, the oil crisis of the 1970s when Japan first established a position in the market. And so we really need to be thinking very hard and very quickly about how we're, we, we get competitive in that space, because right now the world's leading battery technology companies and manufacturers are all out of China. Um, and to a lesser extent, Korea and Japan. But I think Jim can also speak to the nuclear space as well. Right. Yeah, the nuclear piece is, is hugely important. But China is the is, is the only com uh, country that's really building nuclear reactors at scale and, and the like. Uh, we have a nascent industry that uh, with small module reactors and even the, the new Gen 4 and, and 4 Plus and and we're we're doing some work in fusion, so so there are there are some technologies there that have real potential to uh, to begin to address finally and safely the uh, the energy demands of the of the world. But you know every technology is important. I mean, I don't, you know, it could be uh, quantum computing, uh, for example. Uh, it uh, you know, hypersonics, uh, artificial intelligence. These are all areas where China has invested billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, quite frankly, they've. They co-opted uh, international research to uh, to have it uh, uh, brought to China at duplicate labs and the like, as some of as some of these things have been revealed in recent years. Some, you know, perhaps illegalities uh, in the in the classic sense of uh, of attracting uh, U.S. and other researchers to to duplicate their efforts in China, so that they can. Uh, they can stand on somebody's shoulders rather than have to create this out of whole cloth. So we're in a, a com competition and a, and a race here. Uh, we're going to have to be very selective about how we do this because we can't do it all. We, we can't do what China has done, which is throw hundreds of billions of dollars at this and hope that, you know, something comes from it. Uh, but I, I think we're smarter now than we used to be. I think we see opportunities. The real question that uh, we had also had to address in the, in the report is how much do you do in a pure race with China? And how much do you do in an effort to slow down their efforts by denying them, as we talked earlier, the manufacturing capabilities, the tools necessary, but also the access to intellectual property? I mean, there's been a number of huge inroads over decades, in the, even here in the Silicon Valley, with Chinese investment in uh, venture capital firms and, in order to get access to, uh, to nascent technologies. And that's now moving down the, the value chain to, to more basic research. And it's not just the... Uh, the high-end final, uh, you know, research that's uh, on the on the cusp of being uh, put into uh, to production or or viable products. So, 
How do you think about that? What does, uh, you know, things like the CFIUS Act and uh, our process and, and other things have to do with this? How we get that balance right is going to be hugely important. And as I, as we said earlier, it's a rheostat that constantly has to be adjusted. It's not a, a one and done. And that's where you have to uh, wonder if, again, looking at the domestic political situation, how much consistency is the U.S. going to have going forward, given the vagaries of, uh, of our own domestic politics in all of this? Because if we're going to keep our, uh, our allies and partners on board and actively involved, they have to have some sense of consistency in this, that it's not going to be a, a 180 turn overnight should the election go one way or the other, because that doesn't engender confidence and 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 their ability to uh, to forge lasting partnerships with us going forward, which is exactly what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill, you mentioned free trade a, a few moments ago, and to Jim's point, you know, if we're asking our allies and partners to some sense de-risk from the China market, that's going to cost them dollars and cents. You know, they're selling products into China right now, some of which. Um, pose economic or national security threats to us. And if we're asking them to stop, we need to provide them with an alternative market. And and the free trade piece really um, has not been popular for, for quite some time in Washington. Um, you'll recall that in the 2016 election, the, the candidates of both parties walked away from TPP. Uh, and TPP has been dead in the water since then. And the United States has been unable to move free trade agreements through the Congress for a number of years. It's simply not popular. If we're going to be asking nations around the world to kind of abstain from trading in critical technologies to mm-hmm. China, we've got to provide them with with a carrot, not just a stick, right. um, to right. to ensure that um, that that they do this willingly and that we give them uh, something in return. Mm-hmm. And Fun Bill, the other piece to this that we talked about is, you know, we we tend to portray this as a battle of the titans, you know, the, the dragon versus the eagle or whatever simile you want to use. That's not what our allies and partners in the region are interested in. I mean, we had a, a major conference not long ago with Sunnylands. Jim Madison and I ran it. And we had a lot of senior leadership from the national security dimension, uh, our allies and partners in the region present. And one of them related conversation he had with the leader of uh, one of the uh, uh, the uh, the Pacific Island nations, uh, and he asked the rather plaintive question: We see what kind of war you're offering us. What kind of peace are you offering us going forward? And so, to Glenn's point, how we do this in a way that doesn't engender an inevitable conflict, that doesn't lead to uh, uh, to the uh, or, or imply that this is uh, this is inevitably going to come to uh, to blows, is hugely important. Not to be Pollyannish, we've got to be realistic in all of this. But on the other hand. We have to find a way that uh, that offers a, a future that they can sign up to willingly that they think best serves the interests of their nation and their people. You just wonderfully set me up for the final question of this podcast, which is this. For all the uncertainty with regard to Taiwan and China, uh, a few things we do know. We do know that Taiwan will have a new president by the end of 2024. Uh I can't tell you how the American election will turn out. If I did know, I'd be taking all our money and making a big bet offshore right now. But but here's the question. Come 2025, forget about 2024. Let's look at 2025. And Glenn, I want you to take the diplomatic side and Jim, maybe take the military side. In terms of carrots and sticks, what role does diplomacy play here, Glenn, in terms of what you talked about, in terms of partnerships, alliances, diplomatic approaches? And then, Jim, there has to be a military component as well. So, Jim, maybe you should start the military side, then we'll let Glenn and close out with the diplomatic side. Well, I, I think, you know, I mentioned it earlier that uh, there are things we can do and, and we must do uh, to uh, to help Taiwan prepare to uh, to defend itself should that become necessary. And we've talked about that. I've written papers with Jim Timby on it and large numbers of small things, the porcupine strategy, the lessons we can take from Ukraine, which are many, 
about the importance of concealment and resilient communications and real-time targeting, uh, things like, uh, you know, the reality is right now, uh, and I'm not getting into anything classified, we can't provide to Taiwan today a fraction of what we're providing to Ukraine on a daily basis. In other words, real-time targeting, a common operating picture. If we were to decide to come to their assistance, and I'm not preordaining that outcome, uh, how would we deconflict that? How would we know friend from foe? How would they know who we are and, and they are and where our forces are? Those kinds of things can be put in place now and would act as an additional deterrent. We need to dramatically speed up the procurement and delivery process. Taiwan, uh, to my amazement, has uh, ordered and paid for five years ago things that have yet to be delivered, stinger missiles and things of that of that ilk. We need to explore co-production arrangements with them. They have a very robust and capable uh, uh, military technology industry. They could uh, license and produce some of these uh, things on the, on the island, and, and that might provide some of that, a little bit of that economic benefit that uh, that Glenn was talking about. We need to realize the the essential character of allies and partners in this. Uh, you know, this is a home game for China, should it ever come to conflict. It's not a home game for us. And we've got neighbors in the, that are peering into the stadium that are going to make a decision on whether they help or not and to what level they do in terms of basing opportunities, the critical logistics, uh, the things that uh, that really would be would be essential to this. So we, we we shouldn't assume that this would be an easy situation, but we have to work harder to help Taiwan and then to create ourselves a, a capability that's more realistic and more viable should that uh, that escalatory uh, uh, scenario unfold. Mm-hmm. And Glenn, the non-military side of the equation. Right. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the key lesson here is that regardless of which party wins the presidential election and which party prevails in the Congress, that that we remain, I think, committed to working with allies and partners and putting the America first and America only language off to the side. Um, we, we prevail here as a team. Um, and if America is first, then the Germans have every right to be first for themselves as well, and the French and the British and the Japanese and the Indians, and then the team crumbles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think what has been most heartening about the last few years is that I think we've rediscovered the importance of doing that. Um, there's a lot more work we can do. You know, the the relationship with China is playing out across the globe. It's not just in East Asia. It's also in Africa with regard to critical resources, especially minerals. It's in Latin America. It's everywhere. And, you know, the U.S. is a victim of its own success. In some ways, we won the Super Bowl of the Cold War. And then off while we were celebrating, China came up fast. Well, it's a new season. We're going to need new tactics. We're going to need to reinvent our playbook. We're going to need to get back into the game. And in order to win, we have to show up. Um, Year after year, administration after administration, uh, we have found that it takes way too long to even install ambassadors in many foreign capitals, Mm -hmm. um, simply because the process of confirmation in the Senate for domestic political reasons gets bogged down. If you don't have an ambassador in a country, we can't work with that country at, at, at our full potential. And so this is a really simple thing which we need to be able to solve to ensure that we're building the best team that we can to win this competition and ensure that it serves all of our interests. So the diplomacy side is huge and we've made a lot of progress in in the last several years. Um, Part of it is also getting out of Xi Jinping's way rhetorically. If you've just been paying attention for the last two or three years, hand this guy a microphone, let him talk, he'll alienate the world. Um, That plays to our advantage as well. You know, the US won the Cold War, not just with the military piece, but also having the better proposition. Uh, Gentlemen, let's leave it there. I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned very much. I'd like to thank both of you for the wonderful work you do for the Hoover Institution. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. 
Thank you, Bill. A pleasure. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and X feeds. It kills me to have to say X. I want to say Twitter, but it's X. Our X handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T at Hoover Inst. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show. That's Hoover.org. That's where you'll find the report we've been discussing. It's titled, once again, Silicon Triangle, the United States, Taiwan, China, and Global Semiconductor Security. It's a joint report of the Hoover Institution and the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. Also, while you're at the Hoover website, make sure to check out all the great work Glenn is doing with Hoover's China Global Sharp Power Project. You can also sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what Glenn Tiffert and Admiral James Ellis and their Hoover colleagues are up to. That's emailed to you weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with the new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.